This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello, I am Mark Borderstone, and welcome to The End of History, a monthly program presented by the Canterbury Socialist Society where we discuss the class struggle, contemporary unionism, economics and current affairs in order to promote working class history and socialist ideas as they apply to the 21st century. Kia ora koutou, afio mai, welcome to The End of History, a radio show slash podcast brought to you by the Canterbury Socialist Society. I'm Shannon Burns, I'm an executive member of the Canterbury Socialist Society and I am so pleased to bring you this episode in which I talk to a special guest, play a couple of songs and recommend a couple of resources. Before I get into all of that however, I have a few words for those who are new to the show. So, the Canterbury Socialist Society or the CSS is a socialist organisation based in Ōtautahi Christchurch and it's also affiliated to the New Zealand Federation of Socialist Societies, or the NZFSS. The CSS presents regular educational and social events, publishes a biannual magazine, the third issue of which is due out very shortly, more on that later. The CSS also supports industrial and other actions in and outside of Ōtautahi, and more. For example we've been known to put together an excellent quiz night. If you'd like to learn more about and or join the CSS or a federated socialist society local to you, please head to socialistsocieties.org.nz. If you'd like to get in touch with the CSS specifically, you can email canterburysocialistsociety at gmail.com. This is a good time to get involved not least because I know that preparations for the first NZFSS conference are well underway. But again, I'll have more to say about CSS and NZFSS activities at the end of this episode. For now, let me say that I am so excited to introduce this month's special guest, Will Hansen. Will is a PhD candidate at Victoria University of Wellington, where he researches queer activism and histories. And since 2017, Will has also been a trustee of Legans, or the Lesbian and Gay Archives of New Zealand. I spoke to Will on Monday the 24th of April, earlier today for some of you, and what a warm and fulfilling conversation we had, so fitting, I think, for this time of year that we reserve for remembrance. Will and I spoke about his research and his role at Legans. And inevitably, we also spoke about some recent events relating to queer and trans liberation. I really enjoyed my conversation with Will. You're about to hear it, and I hope you enjoy it too. I'll be back afterwards. Okay, lovely. So I have um, Will Hanson on the line. I was wondering, Will, if you could please just start by introducing yourself. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Um, My name is Will. Um, I use he, him pronouns. I am a trans man um, who is a PhD student uh, working at Victoria University in Wellington on my thesis about queer activism in Aotearoa, and I'm also a trustee of the Lesbian and Gay Archives of New Zealand, Tipuranga Takatapui o Aotearoa. <laughs> Amazing. So cool. Um, and you've just been away at a conference, is that right? Did you want to tell us a little bit mm-hmm. about that? 
Yeah, yeah, so I was really lucky. I got to go to the Moving Trans History Board Conference in Canada, in Victoria in Canada. Um, and it was, it was, it was just a fantastic time. It's organized by the Chair in Transgender Studies at, uh, the University of Victoria over there. And, uh, they have transgender archives there. Um, and they've had this kind of Chair in Transgender Studies, uh, position for, um, a number of years now. So they've got quite a, um, strong um, collective of, of trans scholars, especially trans historians, and it was just so fantastic to kind of nerd out with a bunch of other trans yeah. people interested in trans history, and um, I was very excited. There were a couple of older trans men who've done activism um, in that space since the 1980s who were there, who are kind of kind of low-key heroes of mine that I didn't know were going to be there that I got to meet, so um, yeah, it was, it was a really brilliant time. <laughs> That's so cool. What an awesome opportunity to just, yeah, even if they weren't your heroes, but that's even icing on the cake, eh? <laughs> yeah, so well, it kind of um, sparked a bit of identity crisis, or well, not identity crisis, identity revelations for me, because I kind of realised I've never met a trans man who's older than his 50s. I've, I've met mm-hmm. trans women who are older um, in my research and stuff, but I've really, really struggled to find older trans men um, and to meet these trans guys who were in their 80s was just so huge for me on a personal level as well as just my, you know, passions and interests and things. And it kind of made me realize for a long time I've been thinking that I'm non-binary and I I still think I am, but I I actually feel kind of comfortable claiming the label trans man for myself. So it's one of the first times I've said it out loud is is talking talking to you about it just now. So it it was really fantastic to kind of, yeah, finally kind of meet people that I could see myself oh, this is what I look like, you know, in 60 years. Yeah, what a huge moment. Do you, why do you think yeah, it is? Yeah, it was huge. Why do you think it is that you that you haven't met anyone who's a trans man of that age? I, I might talk to you a bit later about, you mm. know, some of the, the protests that have happened recently. There's a lot of, you know, quite rightfully because it's a, you know, turf feminists were the people who were kind of causing all the problems, but there was a lot of stuff about mm-hmm. trans women are women, but there was a real, like, invisibility around trans men, I thought, as well. Um, mm. but yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's that's a really <laughs> difficult no, question to pose, but, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't have, like, I, I still don't really know. I'm still kind of figuring out why that is, but I think the main reason is just trans misogyny. Like, I think that trans men are generally, you know, way more privileged than trans women and um, that means like that's got the kind of um, I guess even though there's all that that privilege there it's got that I guess adverse effect of, of meaning that trans men because they're so much more able to kind of blend in and assimilate um, into society generally are, you know if they're passing as men especially they're able as cis men you know they're able to get more higher paying jobs blah 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 whereas a lot of trans women um, facing trans misogyny and especially if they're facing other um, intersecting oppressions are you know kind of I guess forced in a way to be a bit more public a bit more out and obviously a lot of people aren't forced and they just choose choose that but um, I think that's maybe part of that, that's kind of the, the sense I get is a lot of trans men uh, in that older generation once they were able to kind of um, blend in I guess or divorce themselves from community they um, you know the, the safety and the acceptance and uh, everything that comes from that I think is it's so human to want that so you know uh-huh. I totally understand why that, why that happens but it definitely means that I think for a lot of us younger uh, guys out there um, that kind of invisibility of older trans men um, 
is a pretty big thing. Yeah, totally. Wow, thank you for thank you for going into that a little bit for me. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and when I think, you know, I think of the older trans women who are both in and out, and um, you know, have been leaders in our community. Georgina Baya, obviously passed mm. away recently. Carmen Rupe is someone who we all, you know, know about, and there's lots of other women, like especially working at the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective, who are part of the Fana Fana, and um, they're, you know just absolutely fantastic and have done such amazing things for our community and to have them and their uh, visibility um, in their kind of older age, I guess, has is, is been um, is, is, is awesome and it means so much to everyone. Yeah, I'm really glad that you mentioned Georgina Byer, actually, and um, I feel <laughs> like talking to you, this is a whole lot of it's really serendipitous, like, you know, for good, good reasons mm-hmm. and not so good reasons you know, more sad ones too, but a lot of things coming together. Obviously, Georgina Byer passed away in March. Um, but I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could tell me about your master's thesis, and um, I understand the title was Every Bloody Right to Be Here. <laughs> yeah, which was a quote from Georgina. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's thankful. It's so exciting to have the opportunity to talk about it. Cause, you, know, <laughs> you know how it is being a researcher yourself. But, um, I, I really yeah, much it, do. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really, I'm really glad to have the opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you for your, thank you for your interest and your support. Um, but yeah, so I did my master's thesis, finished it in um, 2020, and that was about trans uh, resistance in Aotearoa in the 70s and 80s, um, which I chose as, as decades because that was uh, when in, in 1972. Um, the first uh, trans organization that I found at least on, on record was founded. And then, you know, in the 70s, Carmen Rupe is very much in her prime. And um, there's a lot more, I guess, archival information than in those earlier decades. And best of all, there was um, many uh, people who I could talk to about their experience of those decades, especially trans women. I, I managed to talk to one trans man who kind of right at the end of the 1980s started coming out and um, figuring himself out. But um, yeah, so so it was just uh, it, it was the best time ever to kind of do that research, and, and and such a privilege to talk to these older trans people about um, how they made their lives more livable, how they uh, resisted uh, the different kinds of oppressions that they were facing, and in particular this kind of um, imperative that was uh, both very explicit and and came through in more implicit ways of trans people needing to isolate and a lot of doctors telling trans people that if they were to get gender affirming surgery, you know, the doctors were saying, you can't do that unless you cut out all your trans friends and blah, blah, blah. And all of these trans people standing up and saying, well, actually my trans friends are my family and I want to stay connected to them. And they're what's giving me power to live in this world. So, um, that was part of where that uh, title quote, everybody right to be here comes from is that's Georgina Bayer talking in another interview and in, in the context of um, speaking about some of the violence that she faced and saying, actually, I've got this, this, that, that violence was terrible and I should never have had to experience that, but it's given me this kind of rage that's propelling me forward. And it's, I'm looking at my friends who are going through the same thing and we've got everybody right to be here. You know, yeah. we, we deserve to exist in this world. We deserve to have love and community and, you know, power and all those things. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that was a bit of a muddled. <laughs> no, it's, it's, I still haven't, you know, I finished my PhD a few years ago and I still don't have like an elevator version of it. So <laughs> I do <definitely laughs> Um, 
Can you, I, I hadn't heard that before. Can you tell me a bit about what you understand? What was the thinking around, um, you know, doctors or uh, medical professionals saying that you would have to, um, in order to have gender-affirming surgery, cut yourself off from your mm. trans and community? What, what was their thinking there? I guess it was they, they were thinking that in order to qualify for gender-affirming surgery, you needed to be a candidate who would be an exemplary woman or man, you know, in a very binary sense, and you needed oh to God. be a good citizen and you needed to have a good job and, you know, sex workers wouldn't qualify because they needed to have, like, you know, a legal and respectable, you know, in air quotes, respectable means mm. of employment, blah, blah, blah. Um, so a lot of that kind of, like, if you've got trans friends, well, then you're not blending in and you're not being a good citizen and you're not... Um, you know, kind of conforming to to what we see as, as what it means to be a good woman or a good man. Um, and Donna DeMilo talked about that in an interview with Gareth Watkins in 2011, I think it was, um, where she said that, yeah, in the, in the um, I think it was the late 60s when she was applying for surgery, um, the doctors said that to her and she was like, no way, <laughs> my, yeah. not my friends. Um, but she ended up going to Egypt and getting the other surgery over there and they were, um, that was kind of a, a hub for uh, trans surgery at the time, and they were a lot more kind of accepting of that kind of thing. And I don't think there were as many hurdles as there, but uh, yeah, there was definitely a lot of a lot of that um, behaviour. Yep, yep. How disappointing. Um, can you tell me then how maybe your research has developed um, into what you're sort of looking at now? Maybe give me a wee bit of a rundown of that and. Um, is it, am I right in thinking that is it Sybil Locke is one of your supervisors? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and she's a labour historian, isn't she? Yeah, she's awesome. Yeah, cool. Um, I haven't met her before, but I know that she's done some stuff for the Wellington Socialist Society. So another mm. nice little constellation of um, connections there. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll let you. Um, sorry, go on and and tell me a bit about your no, no. PhD stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. So basically, when I was researching my master's stuff it was very clear that as much as that that trans communities are, you know, such a a interwoven with queer communities more generally. And you can't talk about trans history without talking about, you know, queer history, gay history, lesbian history, bisexual history, so on, um, and vice versa. But when I'm reading a lot of the gay histories that have been written, you know, there's some absolutely fantastic and pioneering work, but, you know, Almost all of them, you know, if they mention trans people, it's a very brief little mention. Mm. Some of them don't mention trans people at all. And I'm, I'm, you know, looking at all this trans history and thinking, oh, my God, well, trans people did all of this in gay liberation and they did all of that in homosexual law reform and so on. And so I wanted to do this project about queer activism from the 60s through the um, early 2010s um, because I wanted to, I guess, resurface some of those um, missing stories. I feel like there's quite an established um, narrative, well, and a narrative that's becoming more and more established as more and more people are kind of paying attention to queer history. Um, homosexual law reform is now part of the NCEA curriculum. Mm. And so there's kind of this story that started to become more and more repeated, and it's a story that has excluded trans people, and it's um, very focused on lesbians and gay men, and there's not so much attention to bisexuals, and um, it's a very white story. It's a very middle-class story. So wanting to, uh, just coming from that trans lens and, and realizing actually there's a lot of communities that have been excluded, and so what what is that kind of, 
what, who are those moments and those people that are not captured? Um, what are the, what's that record of resistance? How did that change over time? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, amazing. It sounds like very like important research and work. And is there well, <laughs> is there any like a particular I don't know person or moment that um, you think deserves a little bit more of the spotlight, or anything that you wanted to sort of say to people who might be interested <laughs> in this? You should check out this person. Or <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, there's so many, but my kind of favourite person that I've had the chance to talk to since uh, studying my PhD has been um, a trans woman named Sandy Gauntlet. Um, Sandy is just amazing. I didn't, I hadn't, I didn't know about Sandy when I was doing my masters, and um, kind of I came across her when I was looking. I came across them rather when I was looking at some of the um, archives and about gay liberation um, in Auckland and Rotorua. So uh, Sandy is a non-binary trans feminine person who. Um, was part, was one of the first members of the Auckland Gay Liberation Front in 1972, um, was out as trans at the time, uh, was a sex worker, was a performer, um, very much part of that trans camp uh, world of um, of sex work and nightlife and everything, and, and also part of gay liberation. Um, and in 1973, Sandy moved to Rotorua and founded the Rotorua Gay Liberation Front, which they single-handedly ran for like a year. Um, they, you know, corresponding with lots of local people, helping them uh, figure themselves out, come out, blah, 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 all of that kind of thing. Um, and then was uh, went back to Auckland in 1974, um, was advocating for trans issues, doing um, media, uh, corresponding with some other people in the South Island who were doing the same thing in Christchurch Celebration Front. Um, uh, kind of advocating for trans people in those spaces. Um, and Sandy was, yeah, really vocal within queer communities, was writing in gay liberation newsletters and things, um, about trans issues. Um, yeah, and, and, and since then has done also incredible work in environmental and in indigenous, uh, rights spaces. Um, I've, I've kind of focused on, on the earlier years, but they're still going and still doing so much activism today. And so Sandy Cortland is definitely someone who I would want to give more of a spotlight to for sure. Oh, awesome. I'm always so um, impressed by, you know, activists do so much work. It's great to have like ideological positions and to be kind of beacons for that stuff. And then also to be figuring yourself out at the same time as a huge amount of work. Yeah. But just the organisational like capacities of <laughs> activists, I'm always just so in awe of, <laughs> like single-handedly yeah, totally. running stuff and all the actual just procedural stuff that that entails. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's not a skill that I necessarily have. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, I was just thinking that myself. <laughs> I'm terrible, at it, but you know, it's amazing. Yeah, reading all of the, you know. Uh, the Lesbian Gay Archives is just full to the brim of folders and folders and boxes and boxes of all these organisational materials mm. and um, archive, you know, young newsletters and things, and uh, it's just an overwhelming amount of work. And I sit here thinking, oh my god, I'm really keeping up with my thesis. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Tell me about it. Um, another <laughs> another great segue. Um, so, can you tell me about Legans and in what that organisation is, you mentioned it briefly earlier, but um, maybe uh, what its origins are and how you came to be involved mm. with Legans as well, um, that would be great. 
Yeah, definitely. So um, Lagans uh, kind of officially has been um, in its current existing and current form since 1992, but has a very long history of these activists in the early days, in the late 60s, early 70s, collecting um you know, anything they could find on, on queer history and, and collecting contemporary, you know, newspaper clippings and so on, um, eventually evolving in 1997 into the uh, National Gay Rights Coalition Resource Center. Then it became autonomous um, as, as an archive kind of recognizing the importance of um, the, this, this information and, and collecting these things um, in the context of activism, very much activism driven, was really um, important during those early years of the AIDS crisis um, and gathering statistics, trying to figure out ways to help people and support people, and was also really important during homosexual law reform. And then um, a couple months after homosexual law reform was passed in 1986, um, when it was still the Lesbian and Gay Resource Centre, it got attacked by arsonists um, oh who uh, lit it lit on fire, um, as well as scrawling some horrible words and uh, actually defecating in one of the corners of the of yes. the archives um, <laughs> before yeah before. Um, you know, running off. But luckily the firefighters got there really quickly and actually most of the archives survived. There's only, we've still got some, um, some papers with charred edges, um, kept as, you know, an archive in themselves for, uh, this time. But that was a huge moment in, in Legang's history that then meant that, uh, the, the Alexander Turnbull Library, the National Archives, um, uh, stepped in to help, uh, Legans, um, secure their collection, make sure it was safe. Um, we've got an agreement with the Alexander Turnbull Library, so our collection is most most of our collection is stored in the um, in the National Library in, in Wellington in their beautiful, safe, um, you know, wonderful storage facilities they've got there. But it's unique in that it's still autonomously um, operated by the board by the trustees on behalf of the community. Um, yeah, so I'm so I'm one of the <laughs> one of the trustees. I joined in 2017. Um, and it's just it's just been fantastic. I um, have been really, really lucky to work alongside wonderful people like Roger Swanson, Kevin Honnelly, Gavin Hamilton, um, Donald Rafel, uh, Linda Evans, Elizabeth Kitty who are all part of the board, um, and some other faces that have, that have come and gone. We've got some new folks on board recently too, um, and uh, they do incredible work um, gearing for the collection and providing access uh, for people. And, and my role has kind of been... Um, I guess a bit of a, a youth liaison person when I joined, I was, I was 20 uh, or 21. So um, I got up on Instagram and done all that kind of thing. I'm not, I'm not particularly tech savvy though, so I'm not been the best representative. But, um, and I've been, uh, my kind of main project has been working with uh, Wellington Zine Fest to create these um, uh, workshops where we bring people into the archives, um, show them, some of our archival collections, talk about queer history, and then uh, produce a zine that the participants uh, create based on their experiences. And we haven't been able to do one uh, in a couple of years, but I'm hoping that once the PhD is over, yeah. we'll get that program started back up again. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm really struck by um, listening to you. My partner used to work in um, archives at the University of Canterbury, and particularly around uh, earthquake stuff. Um, but he said mm. one of the things that really he found quite tragic about his experience of archives was how um, sort of gatekept a lot of the archival material was and how it he was sort of like it just goes there to 
to sit there and, and be preserved mm-hmm. but for who and how to be used. Um, and so that, that was something he struggled with a little bit and it sounds like that the archival material that Lagans has collected is actually really alive, like it comes from activism and it's also being um, used by the community. Yeah, totally. And I think that's kind of a, a consistent challenge that we face, especially with it being in the National Library, is what does that mean for access for our communities? You know, do people feel safe going into a big institutional building like that? Do people even know it exists? How do we, um, you know, I kind of found that, especially among young people, a lot of young people don't know Leggings exists, um, which is why I thought even just something as simple as Instagram putting some images online, sharing some stories about what we collect so that people are kind of aware of it and it keeps that momentum going and it doesn't um, become something that only only a uh, select part of our communities know about or can access. Yeah, totally. Um, so just speaking of what, what is collected, do you have any you know, particular items that spring to mind or any favourite items that you've been able to share you know, via Insta or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, that's a good story. Uh, that's a good question. So yeah, uh, there's there's so many items that I really love. Um, I mean, because we collect all sorts of things, um, lots and lots of paper-based materials, like I said, lots of meeting minutes and um, newsletters and all of that kind of thing. Uh, but also we've got photographs, we've got badges, t-shirts, zines, um, lots of different kinds of um, parts of our collection. Um, I guess my favourite thing, I really really love the um, the uh, devotion magazines. So in the uh, 1990s, there was this annual queer festival called Devotion in Wellington um, that uh, produced these wonderful um, magazines every year that were just about the community and they're full of beautiful colours and images and uh, wonderful stories about uh, different people and, and quite diverse as well. They've got stories of trans people in there. So I, I really love those. Uh, and some of the early scrapbooks from 1972 were also favourites and that was where um, you know, some of Sandy's stories are archived and things like that. So, yeah, those would be my favourites, I think. <laughs> yeah, very cool. And um, this might be a, a silly question, I'm not sure, but is um, m- much of the collection digitised so that people could um, access it maybe uh, via the National Library or Oligans over the internet or stuff like that? That's the opposite of a silly question. No, that's a super important question. Um, it's something that we're grappling with a lot because digitization obviously is super expensive. Yeah. Um, and because, uh, you know, we're community run, uh, it's all, all of our work is, um, based on donations. So, uh, we've got a big, um, drive at the moment to get donations into, um, to set, set up uh, digitization so that we can have an online catalog so that people from anywhere around the country or anywhere around the world can access our archive. So um, if anyone listening wants to donate to that, uh, it's live on Give, Give a Little or you can go to our um, website, Lagans, uh, I think it's .org.nz or Lagans.com, I can't quite remember, but it should come up, Lagans. Um, yeah, uh, and Gavin Hamilton, one of our board members, is doing fantastic work leading that because, you know, yeah, it's it's – it's so huge to have that online access um, and and so important that, that anyone can just type it into Google and find it. So um, hopefully we can get that underway, but it's just going to take a lot of money and a lot of manpower. Well, listeners, dear listeners, please, <laughs> please <laughs> donate. Um, excellent. excellent. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> cool, thanks. So um, I guess a bit of maybe a more conceptualist sort of question now. Um, what lessons do you take from uh, your readings of queer history and um, queer archives and then maybe in particular trans history? Are there like recurring themes that you see or are there lessons that we really need to be um, observing? Mm. Yeah, that's such an interesting question. I mean, it's something I, I'm thinking about all the time, but I don't know if I have a very good answer to it because I'm, I just very much feel in the role of, of, of student and there's so much to to learn from um, our ancestors. Our, you know, well, I say ancestors, but it makes it sound like they're much older than they are. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, these people are still alive and still kicking and still working hard. Um, I guess just that, I mean, I mean, that's one thing is just, paying attention to our history, um, being open to the complexities of our history and and uh, reminding ourselves to step back and um, honour those who have come before and the work that they've been building on, I think is really important. Um, something that stands out for me is, I guess, always resisting um, the, the drive to become exclusionary or to gatekeep to, um, you know, that when, when that, reactionary uh, uh, feeling of, oh, that's new, I don't understand that, or mm. oh, what what does this mean? This is, this is complicating some things I thought about myself or held dear to myself, being able to take a deep breath and step back from it um, instead of sliding kind of further into, no, 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 that's not really trans or that's not really lesbian or, you know, this is new, bangled or whatever because, you know, people say that all the time about like non-binary identities, for example, that they're brand new, or you know, people did the same thing about bisexuality and it was just a phase and so on. But actually, you know, when you look at our history, we've got very deep and very wonderful histories of all of these different iterations of the self. They're just spoken with different languages, so being able to kind of, um, I guess, yeah, resist those <laughs> impulses, I think, towards being exclusionary is important. That's such a um, important reminder and something that also I think socialists um, could uh, keep in mind as well. When you know, I've certainly heard things like, "Oh, you know, this is that, that's not really socialism, or that's a bit of a distraction from socialism mm-hmm. proper." Or you know, um, definitely that, particularly amongst some of the older crew, um, you know, no disrespect, but there can be times where I think some of those tendencies slip in. So yeah. Good reminder. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I find myself doing it too. And yeah, again, yeah. I think I think it's natural that everyone does, especially when it's things we hold so dear to ourselves or our worldview. But um, yeah, just important. I guess when I when I think about the people who I've interviewed who are still so active in the community and who have kept their minds and hearts open, people like Marnie Mitchell, you know, who's a intersex activist pioneer. Um, you know, Marnie. Is is in the uh, was well, just turned seventy and is still kind of making sure that they're um, open and um, w- willing to you know take young people at their word, I guess, and 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 learn those things while also holding that some of our older community members um, struggle with these things and and that we need to kind of create those spaces for all of us to come together and talk together um, and and the importance of that. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, thank you. So there's a couple of things that I want to ask you just about, um, I 
guess recent political events um, that we mm. that we can't really sidestep. Um, so <laughs> let's just start um, kind of broadly. And can I ask you if um, if you celebrate Pride Week, um, and and if so, is there a particular way in which you celebrate it? Um, but also, did you want to say anything about the way that Pride is celebrated? I know there's been some. I guess what I'm trying to get at here is there has been some, you know, criticism coming from within and outside of queer communities around mm. the participation of police in pride marches, um, you know, in, in the way that, as with everything, you know, capitalism kind of co-ops stuff and so you get mm. that, all that pinkwashing and stuff. But I just wondered if you had any thoughts around, you know, pride in general um, and, and how you approach it. Yeah, definitely. I guess, you know, like you say, I mean, I find it absolutely sickening the way that um, that that pride is being co-opted by all of these institutions and corporations that you know, stand so much in opposition of what I think the core of, of queer liberation is, which is anti-capitalist, anti-racist, um, you know, anti-colonialist. That it, it's it, you know it makes me so angry, um, and I definitely am against the inclusion of um, institutions like the police or the military marching down our streets with rainbow flags on top of tanks, you know. Yeah, that what an image. Is the it's, you know, when I saw that, I was just outrageous. Um, but, you know, it's part of their strategy of trying to maintain their power, I guess, or, or whatever. I'm, I'm not um, particularly savvy on, mm. on all of the, the political terms, but uh, it's um, yeah, definitely that pride is not my pride. Um, I guess for me, I, I love to attend the kind of community events. I love what the Wellington Pride Committee do. Um, I love that the Pride Board is so, um, I don't know, they're, they're Indigenous-led and, and um, I love the way that they, uh, especially especially last year's Pride celebrations with Kitangata, were including um, some of the older community members um, uh that was that was really wonderful. I love going to Tifana Fana's event. Tifana Fana is a local um community uh advocacy support and kapahaka group um of uh Takapafui people, but it's 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 all but yeah, they're they're really wonderful. Um sorry, I've lost the train of thought of it, but yeah, yeah it's, it's, I guess <laughs> it's it's kind of those kinds of spaces and just being among, you know, the people I think who show up all the time and yeah. I love going to those kinds of events where you're like, Oh no, this person, no, this person and I think that's the wonderful thing about living in the small places that we live in is getting to to know people and, and feel at home with them. So yeah, that's definitely um, my kind of pride. The people's pride. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, nice. Um, cool. And so thinking about that um, sort of other set of events, recently we had uh, Posey Parker um, come <laughs> to New Zealand. I'm not really sure of – I'd never heard of her before this. I don't know what her, her other name is. Yeah, no, me neither. Um, yeah, mm. but, you know, of course aware of, um, you know, TERFs, trans exclusionary mm. radical feminists. Um, and uh, as someone who I guess kind of started – my sort of more radical politics through feminism, uh, that's mm. been something that I'm really disappointed to see a lot of um, women's stuff, uh, again, co-opted in the name of that kind of exclusionary mm. um, vibe. But so obviously she came here, there was a real mobilisation against um, that kind of 
politics, which was great to see. Mm. Um, I attended the the march down here in Christchurch, but I see there was mm-hmm. a huge one in Wellington and um, mm. and also in Auckland as well. Did you want to say anything about that whole thing, <laughs> that whole uh, yeah series of events? I know <laughs> I feel like I can't listen to you know RNZ in the morning now or or mm. you know, turn up at work without hearing some part of 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 this debate as if it is a debate. Um, <laughs> yeah, mm. so so maybe you could tell me about your thoughts around this. Yeah, totally. Well, I think what I'm struck by by what you're saying is, is uh, how you came to kind of radicalism through feminism because definitely it was the same story for me. And before I realised I was trans, I felt that I was a lesbian and uh, it was very much kind of, I hadn't been able to access in-person community, but very much online I felt a part of lesbian community and was starting to learn about lesbian feminism and that history and becoming confused when I was encountering lesbian separatist stuff and um, one thing that has been really amazing to learn about through the, uh, the, the study that I've been doing is is the amount of solidarity between lesbians and trans people that exist in our history, mm. and people like uh, Sandy Gauntlet, who I mentioned earlier, who um, you know who identifies as non-binary now, but at the time was identifying as a trans lesbian woman and was writing in the earliest lesbian feminist magazine we had in New Zealand, and was you know kind of felt in community with lesbian feminists and um, there's this great um, moment where she went to the 1974 uh, National Gay Liberation Conference um, talking with other trans people in front of all of these cis gay and lesbians about trans issues and afterwards um, these groups of lesbians came up to Sandy and Sandy wrote about how they were moved to tears because of the support that the lesbians had given them. you know, there's, there's these moments like this within our history that I think have, have been buried by a very small but vocal and very privileged minority who have worked hard to create this narrative around um, women-only spaces, lesbian separatism, which which definitely exists, but I think it exists in conversation with these histories of solidarity. And so I kind of I draw on, I, I draw a lot of hope from that and, and that history. Um and I guess, yeah, the thing that, that strikes me now is that I feel that more and more these TERF groups are um, becoming less, kind of hiding less between this veneer of lesbian feminism or lesbian separatism and are becoming more openly just, uh, I think, post-Parker said in Hobart maybe, like said, I'm no feminist and, you know, yeah. I, don't, I can't remember, but I don't think she's a lesbian either and, you know, Obviously, the Nazis are attending these rallies and things, and in New Zealand, with groups like Speak Up for Women, they're backed by David Seymour and Family First. And I think, you know, looking at their bedfellows, um, it's very clear that they're a fascist movement, and that any lesbians who are involved are a very small percentage of the wonderful lesbian communities that we have in Aotearoa who are staunch trans allies. And I think of people like Elizabeth Kirikiri, who's done such incredible work in that space and has been a trans ally for the longest time and um, yeah, the wonderful lots of lots of wonderful lesbians come to mind who are sort of fantastic so yeah, I guess just um, my, my perspective is, is what can we do to highlight those those stories instead of um, instead of I guess, yeah, playing playing into that debate and um, allowing uh, people to, to frame it as a, as a debate as you say mm. What a wonderful answer. You just, yeah, you just totally got out of that um, 
really uh, sort of toxic setup and just yeah, what an what an amazing answer. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So look, I'll start to wrap things up now. I've just got um sort of one one sort of main question and then a couple of follow ups. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about what your ideal world looks like? Maybe, um, you know, as you've talked about some of the community aspects of Pride or whatever, maybe you've seen parts of that world in action, but what kind mm. of do you do you look forward to the world being like? <laughs> oh, that's a beautiful question. Um, yeah, I guess like like, like you said, it's, it's those spaces, especially those spaces led by Tifana Fana, which is a group that is led by um, Māori trans women, really, who are just the most, like, uh, just thinking of a couple of women in particular who I interviewed for my thesis, Deanne Jackson, Chanel Hasi, Renee Paul, Taylor Rian, they're women who have given so, so much to me personally and to our communities, and um, I feel so much love for them, and, and I love to be in, in the spaces that they hold for the rest of the community. So if the world could look like the spaces that they hold, which um, are filled with a lot of humor, some of it quite biting at times, but you know, but very, very, but also very loving and um, very community centered. Um, yeah, that, that I, I, and I'd love a world where it's not such a big deal to to try hormones out to you know get top surgery or any kind of surgery that you want and mm. you know more people are having fun with gender and experimenting and you know none of these you know it's no one's um, you know no one's going and getting surgery willy nilly but it's you know it should be something that's just more accessible to people and I don't know all of those kinds of things everyone having a home everyone having food <laughs> yeah yeah I'm on board with that someone at my um a person who I work with um, at Christchurch City Libraries was recently talking about we have these like bicultural values that we that I'm sure loads of big institutions have, and obviously one of them's like Fanonga Tanga, but um, mm. a lot of our staff are like, oh, and it's it's I'm practicing Fanonga Tanga by having you know relationship. I email people outside of my team and stuff like that, and <laughs> <laughs> this person was um, in a position to talk about it and just said it's like like a family treating people as, you, you know, that kind of as you would a family. And that includes all the stuff around, you know, the the humour, the sometimes mm-hmm. conflict that you still get over because, you you know, you, mm-hmm. you treasure your relationships with people and everyone, you know, everyone is kind of, as you have characters in your family, you have, you know, people yeah, who are totally. individuals and all that kind of stuff. So it sounds like you're talking a bit about that that kind of stuff there. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like you hit the nail on the head there because there's always, especially, I don't know, probably in every community I'm only familiar with the queer ones, but we've got so much conflict amongst us. But <laughs> yeah, it's that sense of, sense of family, like you say, is really, really important. Yep, yep. Amazing. I have loved this conversation so much, Will. It's been so good. Is there anything else that you wanted to add, anything that you feel like we haven't really covered? I don't think so. I think I think it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for uh, I don't know, just being so supportive. It's really, really lovely. It made my day. <laughs> uh, well, this has made my day. So yeah, thank you so much. Um, just quickly before I say goodbye, I do ask um all my guests if they would like to select a song to play. Do you have any songs that oh, you'd like goodness. me to? You don't have to pick one, and um, if I've put you on mm. the spot, but you have the opportunity to. <laughs> oh. Yeah, no. Um, 
oh, I want to put on maybe um, my flatmate showed it to me recently. I really love it. It's a logical song by Supertramp. Oh, that's so cool. I forgot I got to choose a song. It's awesome. <laughs> cool. Well, look, um, that's it for now, Will. I have so appreciated talking to you and – I just wish you all the best in your research and also, you, you know, the work that you do with archives and just generally. So, um, yeah, it's just been real lovely and hopefully we cross paths in the future. Thank you. Same to you. Thank you so much.
That was the 1979 song, The Logical Song, by Supertramp, and my guest Will Hansen chose that for you. Thank you so much, Will, for a wonderful conversation. Okay, so it's time now for a couple of very quick reviews. And first up, it's the 2019 work Humankind, A Hopeful History. Now this might seem like an odd choice, and it's not a work I would usually pick up, but it's one that was recommended to me by a former workmate, thank you, Beulah, who had listened to me talk a lot about the cynicism that I and so many others perceive in dominant accounts of human nature. As happens so often, I would be complaining in the office about those people who say things like, socialism is great in theory, but it just doesn't take human nature into account. And one day Beulah suggested that I read Humankind, which is written by the Dutch historian Rutger Bregman. In Humankind, Bregman really systematically refutes that whole idea of human nature as a Hobbesian war of all against all, and so also the idea that it's only thanks to the veneer of civilization that humans are able to work together and make progress toward a more egalitarian world. Basically, Bregman combines historical anecdotes, say about life during the Blitz or the so-called real-life Lord of the Flies, with elements of evolutionary psychology and critical accounts of some of the most famous behavioural studies, like the Stanford Prison Experiment, to argue that in fact humans are made for collaboration and play and to be empathetic. Even the worst of our behaviours, argues Bregman, can be read in terms of our desires to be liked and part of a group. Beyond all of that though, the main question that propels humankind is this. What if humans believed in a different account of our nature? What kind of world could we create? As with so many of the works that I review for this show, Humankind, A Hopeful History, is not explicitly socialist, and I suspect that some of the science has been massaged to support the author's thesis, but then again, that's nothing special. I still found the work extremely heartwarming. I got teary more than a few times, and I specifically recommend this work for those who are new to socialism and or unconvinced about how socialism might work. It's an especially accessible read, and I give it four red stars. Up next, it's the 2023 television series Rain Dogs, written by Cash Carraway and starring Daisy May Cooper of the 2017 mockumentary sitcom This Country, which I also highly recommend. Before I say more, here's a quick clip from the trailer of Rain Dogs. Stella Jones! Do they think we're gangsters or something? Decline. You can't stay here. I promise you, I will write us out of here. No, don't promise, just try. Selby just got out of prison for protecting Costello. Were you together? <laughs> no, I'm a classical homosexual. I think you're mental. I'm mental, am I? You're a lunatic! You're both crazy. Just don't take Iris away from me. It's completely normal to hate the people you love. Okay, so the British comedy drama series Rain Dogs follows single mother Costello Jones and her daughter Iris 
as they attempt simply to live and make ends meet. Costello is an aspiring writer who dreams of leaving sex work behind, and this dream seems a possibility when early on in the series, Costello's best friend, the extremely rich, extremely camp, extremely good at mahjong, Florian Selby, is released from prison and invites both Costello and Iris to live with him in his family's country estate. Over the course of the series, we find out that Costello has experienced sexual violence at the hand of her own mother, and that Florian is deeply traumatised by the suicide of his father. And in fact, it is their trauma that bonds Costello and Florian. At its heart, Rain Dogs is a story about the extent to which contemporary capitalist society forces people into toxic relationships as a matter of survival. It becomes clear that for all of the love they share, Costello's sobriety, Florian's safety and Iris's future depend on their not seeing each other. But the material constraints in life mean that these characters are kind of doomed to fall back into the safety of what's familiar. I must say that I am particularly struck by the way that the series both portrays and resists the tendency to fetishise dysfunction, especially as it relates to poverty. I also just think the show has some extremely funny lines, though they're fairly bad taste, so might not appeal to everyone. I'm thinking off the top of my head of an exchange between Costello and the terminally ill artist for whom she cleans in a sexy but not really so sexy way. Rain Dogs is unapologetic in its humour and its disdain for a culture that loves someone who can pull themselves up by their bootstraps so long as they remain likeable while doing it. And I give it a wholehearted five red stars. So at this point I would play you another song and I actually have one lined up but I'm quite seriously running out of time so I'm going to say my final words and then leave you with a song. I mentioned earlier that the third issue of the biannual CSS magazine titled Commonweal is shortly due for release. You can subscribe to this magazine or pick it up in a handful of pubs and other sympathetic places across the country. If you join the CSS or another of the Federated Socialist Societies, it's just $40 annually. A subscription to Commonweal is included, so do head to socialistsocieties.org.nz for all of that stuff. I also mentioned earlier that the New Zealand Federation of Socialist Societies is in the process of organising its first national conference. At this stage, it's just a heads up, but I will have more on that in future episodes. Again, your best bet for now is to head to socialistsocieties.org.nz. In terms of events, the CSS is looking forward to its next public lecture. Details are yet to be confirmed, but our public lectures tend always to take place on the second Wednesday of the month, and they're usually at Space Academy in St. Asif Street. We're on Facebook, so you can find details of all of our events there. A final quick message to say that I am in the process of collating recordings of all of the CSS and other Socialist Society events for the past few years, and our very good friends at Plains FM are making those recordings available via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and their website. So just search the end of history and enjoy. I really have no time left, so thanks so much to Will, thanks to you, the listener, 
and I look forward to bringing you another episode of the end of history toward the end of May. In the meantime, please enjoy the 2017 song Love in the Time of Socialism by Yellow House. Kakite Anu. Thank you for listening. And if you want to find out more, you can find us on Facebook as the Canterbury Socialist Society or visit our website at www.canterburysocialistsociety.org.nz. Thank you, and until next time, take care.